So today and every Sunday, it's, it's vital for us to hear the voice of our chief shepherd. And as I was thinking about which of the wonderful words of life that Jesus has spoken have been formative for me in my discipleship and in my ministry as a pastor, the words that first came to my mind are the words that Jesus spoke to the Apostle Peter in John chapter 21, if you would turn there in your Bibles. I preached on these words the month after I was ordained to pastoral ministry, and they've continued to beckon me to know and love and follow Jesus all these years. So let's listen carefully and lovingly to Jesus as he speaks to us from John 21. I'm going to read verses 15 through 19. When they had eaten breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said to him, you know that I love you. Feed my lambs, he told him. A second time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, he said to him. You know that I love you. Shepherd my sheep, he told him. He asked him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved that he asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep, Jesus said. Truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you would tie your belt and walk wherever you wanted. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will tie you and carry you where you don't want to go. He said this to indicate by what kind of death Peter would glorify God. After saying this, he told him, follow me. This is the word of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. The story in front of us is the story of a man who has failed miserably and a Savior who has loved him through it all and who is now restoring him to a life of fruitful service and sacrifice in his kingdom. And that's really the story of every Christian, of every follower of Jesus. We're all people who have realized, I have failed the Lord miserably, but we've been pursued and restored, and God keeps on using us for his glory. And it's especially the story of everyone who will ever hope to be fruitful and faithful and effective in pastoral ministry. What is a pastor? A pastor is someone who's been pursued by Jesus, rescued by Jesus, restored by Jesus, and commissioned by Jesus to extend his restoring grace and his love to 
the flock that he purchased with his own blood. That's what a pastor is. Now, in order to appreciate what Jesus is saying to Peter, we have to understand the context that this, this comes in in Peter's life. It was just a little bit while, little while earlier, uh, a couple weeks maybe, on the night when Jesus was betrayed, that Jesus and Peter were having a conversation in the upper room, the place where Jesus had washed the disciples' feet. And, and listen to a little vignette from this conversation. It's in John 13, verse 36. Lord, Simon Peter said to him, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me later. Lord, Peter asked, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus replied, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, I tell you, a rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. So Peter was confident. He was, he was very confident in himself that even though everyone else might run away from Jesus and betray him in his darkest hour, he would be faithful. He would love Jesus even to the point of death. But Jesus knows Peter better than Peter knows himself. And Jesus knows that, that Peter doesn't love him nearly as much as Peter thinks that he loves him. In fact, it's not going to take much to induce Peter to deny Jesus three times, and it's going to happen very soon. So Jesus is going to go to the cross alone, but he knows that the time will come when Peter will be ready to follow him no matter the cost, and that time is the time we are reading about in John chapter 21. Jesus says, you will follow me later in John 13. Now in John 21, that moment has arrived. Before we go further into the story, I want to just pause and, and consider for a moment, how ready are you to follow Jesus? How far do you think you're willing to go in your following after Jesus. How confident are you in the strength of your own discipleship? Jesus knows more about the limits of our endurance and our faithfulness than we do. And if we knew what Jesus knows about our hearts, we'd all probably be a little less boastful a little less sure of ourselves and a lot more dependent on his grace than we usually are, like we just sang. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. And it's especially important for pastors to take this to heart. I've often turned to the prayer of Martin Luther, Dan. This is, I'm sure you've heard me say this, and I, I want to say it again for you today. Listen to what Martin Luther said. Lord, you have placed me in your church as overseer and pastor. You see how unfit I am to administer this great and difficult office. Had I previously been without help, I would have ruined everything long ago. Therefore, I call upon you. I gladly offer my mouth and heart to your service. 
I would teach the people, and I would continue to learn. To this end, I shall diligently meditate on your word. Use me, dear Lord, as your instrument. Only do not forsake me. For if I were to continue alone, I would quickly ruin everything. I, I, I love that prayer because I hear Luther saying, Lord, I would have already made a mess of it if you had left me in the past. I, I couldn't have done anything I've done so far without your constant help and aid. And then he's looking into the present and into the future, and he's saying, Lord, don't ever leave me. Keep me dependent on you, because if you ever live, leave me, I'm going to ruin everything quickly. And I think that's the disp disposition of heart that we always need to bring to pastoral ministry. Now think about what, what's happened between John 13 and John 21. Everything that was necessary for a world of lost sinners to be saved and everything that was necessary for eternal life to be won for those who believe has been accomplished once and for all when Jesus laid down his life on the cross and cried out, it is finished. Jesus paid it all. Jesus did it all alone. And early on the morning that Jesus was coming to his cross to lay down his life for the sins of the world, what did Peter do? He did exactly what Jesus predicted he would do. Before the rooster crowed, he denied Jesus three times. And he reinforced his denial with bitter curses. And then realizing how shameful his failure and his cowardice was, he went out and wept bitterly. But then on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead. And Peter was one of those who was running to the tomb to see that his body was no longer there. And he had encountered the risen Christ. But when we get to chapter 21, Jesus, Peter doesn't yet understand what the resurrection means for his own life. Especially after he's failed Jesus so miserably. So you got to picture this scene as we, we come to the beginning of chapter 21. We're at the, the edge of the Sea of Galilee, and Peter is there with several of the other disciples. And Peter says to them in verse 3, I'm going fishing. And they say, we're coming with you. And they, they get out and go into the boat, but they fish all night and they catch nothing. And Jesus is standing on the shore waiting for them early in the morning, and the disciples don't realize yet that it is he. He calls out to them, friends, haven't you caught any fish? And they say, no, we haven't caught anything. And Jesus says to them in verse 6, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. So they do, and they were unable to haul it in because of the large number of fish. And this isn't the first time the, the disciples have encountered the power of Jesus after a, an evening of futile toil on the sea. John immediately recognizes who this is. And he says to Peter, it is the Lord. And as soon as Peter hears these words, he wraps his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and he jumps into the water, splashing, high knees, getting to Jesus as fast as he possibly can. The other disciples follow, hauling this net that's full of, of fish, and I love what they find when they get to the shore. Jesus is there, and he's got a fire going with burning coals, and he's making a breakfast of fish and bread for them. 
And just think about what this scene shows us about how amazingly kind and gentle and generous Jesus is to his people. What a tender shepherd. He knows how tired and weary and hungry they are. So he's got a fire going and he's got fish laid out on it and he's got fresh bread for them. And it's not like Jesus hasn't gone through a lot lately. I mean, he's just been hanging on the cross, rising from the dead. They've all left him and fled. But instead of lecturing them, he feeds them. Instead of scolding them, he serves them. Can you imagine doing this for someone who has just really hurt you and offended you? Someone who has turned on you at your time of greatest need? Would you want to get up really early in the morning and make a fire and cook breakfast for them? But that's what Jesus is like. Even after you've wounded him, he, he woos you back with his kind and generous love. And the disciples couldn't have eaten this breakfast without remembering the wonder and amazement that they had a couple years earlier when they were with a great multitude and the people were all hanging on Jesus' words and, and they stayed for so long and they hadn't had anything to eat and remember what Jesus did with just a few loaves and fish. He multiplied them and fed the multitudes. The, the, the disciples would surely have remembered that as Jesus served them this breakfast. And they also would have remembered being with Jesus in the upper room and, and sharing the bread and the cup with their Savior the night before his crucifixion. But for Peter, the sight and the smell of that charcoal would have brought back a very nauseating memory. Because there's only one other time in the Gospels that we read about a charcoal fire in the Greek text. And that's back in John 18, where Peter denied Jesus by another charcoal fire. Jesus has this charcoal going. This is where his and Peter's eyes are going to meet one another again. It would have been the perfect opportunity for Jesus to really let Peter have it, standing around that charcoal fire. He has a captive audience Think of all the things he could have said to Peter. I'm going to make sure he knows how wrong he was. He's going to really need to convince me he's sorry before I'll trust him again. I'm going to make him squirm a while before I'll be his friend. But Jesus does none of that. And ask yourself, where would I be today if Jesus treated me the way I treat those who offend me. Jesus is so different in his response. Instead of shaming Peter, he lets Peter share in the preparation of the breakfast. He says, Peter, go get some of those fish you just caught and, and bring them. And they eat together. And then Jesus looks into those anguished eyes and he calls Peter by his birth name. Look at verse 15. Simon, son of John. And that would have jarred something in Peter because it's been a long time since he's been called by this name. Jesus has given him a new name, Peter. But instead, he goes back to the time when Peter was a dependent 
and needy child. It would be like if you said to me, David, son of Gene and Pat, it would remind me of my dependency. Or Dan, son of Ron and Vicky. It was a time when you needed to be cared for and carried and supported. And Jesus meets Peter there at the point where he's the weakest, the most vulnerable, the most dependent. And he's not going to sweep Peter's failure under the rug. He's not going to pretend nothing has happened. He's going to get right to the heart of Peter's failure, and then he's going to overwhelm that memory with a flood of restoring grace. And in the conversation that follows, we can learn three prerequisites for leadership in Christ's church, without which no one can effectively lead. These lessons are so fundamental, yet so essential, and they're, they're easily forgotten. They're easily set aside. Many people try to lead in the church without taking these lessons to heart. But the only kind of leadership that's going to have a lasting influence is the kind of leadership that flows out of these prerequisites. So let me give them to you now. Number one, loving always comes before leading. Loving always comes before leading. Three times Peter denied Jesus. And three times Jesus has a simple, searching, heart-melting, relationship-restoring question for Peter. The question is not, Peter, do you believe in me? The question is not, Peter, will you work hard for me? It's not, Peter, will you build a platform for me? Or will you cause a church to grow for me? It's not, Peter, are you sorry for what you've done and promise you'll never do it again? No, it's a question that's designed to draw Peter close. A question that is, has laser precision to melt the ice that's in their relationship. It's a question that functions like a syringe to draw out the poison and to heal the infection that, that has been caused by Peter's denial. It's the question we all need to hear. Do you love me? That's what Jesus wants to know. Do you love me? There once was a time when Peter was confident of his love for Jesus, so confident he said, I'll go anywhere for you. In fact, he thought he was superior in his love to other disciples, more spiritual perhaps than they, but now Peter is chastened. He recognizes how quickly his love for Jesus leaked and how he actually loved his own reputation and his own comfort and the approval of others more than he loved the Savior who was going to the cross to die for his sins. So Peter isn't boastful anymore. He doesn't say, yes, Lord, I love you more than these. He just says simply, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And just as many times as Peter had denied him, so now Jesus calls Peter to affirm his love for him three times. And it grieves Peter that Peter, that, that Jesus has to keep asking him this question. But Jesus knows that this pain is, is needful. It's important for Peter to feel that, that twinge of grief because it's so much easier to say, yes, Jesus, I love you, than it is to really love him. You can know a lot about the Bible without really loving Jesus. You can work hard in Christian service 
without loving Jesus. You can profess much and talk much and preach much and do much and yet not have much love for Jesus in your heart. And it's easy to let your love grow cold. But Jesus, who knows everything about us, who looks into the core of our being and knows every motivation of our hearts, he reminds us here that before we do anything for him, we need to be able to look him in the eye and say, yes, Lord, I love you. I love you, Jesus. I love you for knowing me from before the foundation of the world. I love you for going to the cross and bearing the blood-stained crown on your brow, brow. And I love you for rising from the dead for me and giving me everlasting life. I love you for your patience. I love you for who you are and for all that you've done. So Dan, I charge you to take this deeply to heart. As you begin your ministry as our lead pastor, please ask the Holy Spirit to never let your love for Jesus grow cold. The greatest fight you're going to have as a pastor is to stay in love with the Savior, to keep loving him fervently from your heart. You got to mortify the sin that dwells within you, but it's, it's not just that. It's all the thousand distractions of good things, good things that can slowly but surely create a drift in your heart away from the love of the one who loved you and gave himself for you. So pray unceasingly that you will be an extravagant lover of Jesus. The way you will impact this congregation is being the kind of guy who jumps into the water running after Jesus because you love him so. Though you don't see him now, Peter said, you love him. And may you continue to love the unseen Savior. And may the fact that he will always love you more than you're going to ever be able to love him make you want to love him more and more and more. May this be one of the great cries of your heart, Jesus. I want to love you more. Because when you love Jesus, this is going to be a lovely fragrance to everything you do as a pastor in our church and a leader in our community. Like light, your love for Jesus will shine and we will see it. It will be heard in the tone of your sermons and your conversations. And like heat, your love for Jesus is going to radiate a warmth that affects everything you do as a pastor. Loving comes before leading, always. That's the first lesson. The second is this, leading in Jesus' church, leading is by feeding. Jesus makes it very clear to Peter <clears throat> that if he loves him, if, if Peter finds him more desirable and satisfying than anything else, then his love is going to overflow in a particular action. You hear it three times. Verse 15, feed my lambs. Verse 16, shepherd my sheep. Verse 17, feed my sheep. That's, that's how love for Jesus is manifested in a pastor's life and ministry. How do we do that? How do we feed his sheep? Jesus tells us in John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice. I know them 
and they follow me. So we feed his sheep by letting the shepherd's voice be heard. Jesus says in John 6, 63, the spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the spirit and life. So one way pastors are called to feed the sheep is through the preaching of the word on Sunday mornings. And that, that's a massive responsibility. And you're going to have the responsibility of doing that a third of the Sundays we gather here. That's, that's a big job. But I think we'd be limiting, limiting the scope of Jesus' exhortation if we thought that the only time we feed his sheep is when we're in the pulpit. I can see at least three potential pitfalls if we think that way. Number one, we can turn preaching into a formality that feels distant or removed from daily life if it becomes all about the pulpit. Or we can turn pastoral ministry into a performance if our only way of thinking of feeding the sheep is through preaching on Sunday mornings. And we'll malnourish the flock of Christ if we only think of it in terms of the pulpit. I believe that what Jesus is calling us here to do is something much more pervasive than a weekly sermon, as massive in importance as that sermon is. Every, every time we open our mouths, we should be ready to feed Christ's sheep with the goodness of his word. Every time we get together in a small group or write an email or guide a staff meeting, or take up the guitar and lead the congregation in worship. It's an opportunity to feed the sheep. I mean, just think about all the pastoral care situations we find ourselves in in ministry. How many times are you going to be faced with complicated, perplexing issues that you have no experience at all of dealing with in your own life, and people are going to be looking to you for guidance? How many times are you going to find yourself in a hospital room during a crisis, or at the deathbed of a senior saint? What will make you competent in those moments for which there is no formula, no textbook, no possible way to prepare? How can you be ready to feed Christ's sheep? Well, Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 3, all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So feed his sheep, Dan, at weddings and funerals and small groups and staff meetings and family devotions and conversations with neighbors at retreats and written communications that you're going to take part of hundreds and hundreds and thousands of times over the next 30 years. All of these present you with an opportunity and a responsibility to feed the sheep that Christ has purchased with his own blood. Feeding the sheep means not only speaking to 400 people on a Sunday morning, but to the one person that God has put in front of you. The one person that maybe no one else is noticing, realizing this person needs to be nourished. This person needs to be strengthened with God's word. This person is so precious to Christ that he shed his blood for her. So feed the sheep. Your ability to shepherd people in all these different situations is going to be directly connected 
to how richly and deeply the word of God is flowing in you and through you. This is more than just a perfunctory Bible reading. In order for the sheep to be fed, the word has to be assimilated. It has to be nourished, uh, nourishing in our own hearts. We have to, we have to experience the life-giving power of the word of God in us in order to be equipped to feed others with it. So I want to encourage you, Dan, that your fruitfulness as a pastor is not controlled by how easily you can weave in references to media or movies or how charismatic your personality is or how savvy your organizational abilities are or how great you are at relationships. All of these things are tertiary. What matters is how deeply the word of God is penetrating your own heart and your own life. So I urge you to be saturated in the scriptures, to, to let the word of God take hold of you and shape you and control you and conform you more and more and more to the image of Jesus Christ. Be a Bible-saturated man. Master this book and be mastered by this book. And then the last exhortation is that you can only lead as far as you have followed. Back here in John 21, Jesus and Peter are having this tender, poignant conversation. Peter's being restored by the Savior that he has denied. And Jesus wants Peter to know what this is going to cost him. He says to him in verses 18 and 19, Truly I tell you, when you were younger, you would tie your belt and walk wherever you wanted. You had freedom. But when you grow old, you're going to stretch out your hands. Someone else is going to tie you and carry you where you don't want to go. And he's telling him, this is the kind of death you're going to die by which you're going to glorify God. And we know that Peter, when he came to that point of death, thought himself unworthy to die in the same way Jesus died. And so he said, turn me upside down. He was ready to follow Jesus no matter the cost. There was a time when, Jesus, when Peter thought he was ready, but he wasn't. But Jesus is now telling him, later, now is the time, Peter, you are going to follow me. And literally, this is going to mean crucifixion for Peter. I don't know what it's going to mean for you, Dan, to follow Jesus wherever he leads you. And I don't want you to be scared of it either. We've already seen you and Holly follow Jesus and your family follow Jesus through some really painful things. And as we've watched you follow him, we've learned to follow him through trials. The point here is that the only way to glorify God is by following Jesus wherever he leads. By putting your heart in his hands and saying, Lord, if you need to break my heart to make me the kind of man who can lead your flock, then break it. Whatever you need to do in me, Jesus, I want to be ready to follow you there. Because, Dan, when, when Jesus wants to lead this church somewhere, he's probably going to first lead you there so that you can lead us in the direction that he's calling us to go. And it might feel confusing for you sometimes and perplexing and painful 
and even excruciating at times. And there will be a cost that your family shares in that as well. And there will be ways that you're going to pay the cost of leadership that no one else in this church can even understand. I want to encourage you to just remember who you're following. And what a privilege it is to have such a gracious master. Don't lose sight of the reward that we read in every elder meeting. Those words that we read in our elder meeting came from Peter after a long life of following Jesus in the way that Jesus led him. And listen to what he says. We read this in every meeting we have. I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness to the sufferings of Christ, as well as one who shares in the glory about to be revealed. Shepherd God's flock among you, not overseen out of compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not out of greed for money, but eagerly. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And here's what motivates us to keep doing this. It's this. When the chief shepherd appears, you also will receive the unfading crown of glory. That's the reward. In the end, it will be worth it all. So I want to end this sermon, Dan, by just saying to you the last words that Ray Ortland spoke to me on the day that I was installed as the senior pastor of our church. It kind of came out of the blue, and I never forgot what he said. He just looked me in the eye, and he said, David, think often of heaven. And he sat down. And Dan, I want to say the same thing to you. And I pray that those words would stick with you the way they've stuck with me the last 30 years. Think often of heaven. Think of what it will be like to stand before Jesus, who has gone ahead to prepare a place for you, who is waiting to award you, reward you with the unfading crown of glory. Think of what it will like, be like to find him at the end of the race, embracing you in his arms and saying, well done. Think often of heaven and let that motivate you to persevere and to follow Jesus no matter what it costs. Amen. Well,